Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The American housing market has long been volatile. But when the pandemic hit, it went mad. So March is where things started to go ahead and get pretty insane. Nicole Mickle is a Florida realtor based in Orlando. She saw demand for houses go through the roof. People purchased homes without even seeing them in person. Doing the entire transaction online, I had never seen that before. And you were having 40 offers at one time, less than 24 hours. Lockdowns and new home working patterns were leading Americans to reassess how and where they lived. There was a rush to up sticks and move. Competition for housing in Florida was so fierce that people were buying any property they could get their hands on. They didn't care. It was like, I don't care. The more I would present, you know, a potential negative, they were like, I don't care. I want it. Then, in March 2022, the Fed started raising interest rates. Quickly. This morning, as interest rates rise, the frenzied housing market starting to slow down. As the cost of mortgages went up, it put the brakes on the frenzied housing market. But things did not return to normal. Millions of Americans are priced out of buying a home, often competing with all-cash offers well above asking prices. Now, Americans are facing the least affordable market on record. Yeah, the locals are feeling it. Um, Many of them are now going to probably be eternal renters before they had a range of purchasing. They had a voice, they had options. Those people are kidding to buy right now. No way. That has left many asking whether a crash is inevitable. But if anything, the housing market seems to be picking up again. What is going on with housing in America? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. In London, I'm Alice Forward. Also in London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. All by myself in Seoul, I'm Mike Bird. And in today's show, can anything take the heat out of the US housing market? First, we'll ask what led to today's high prices. Then we'll hear how much interest rate rises are adding to mortgages. For like a typical household in the US across, that's an extra $800 a month. And finally, we'll learn how central bankers are thinking about the impact of that. So if housing becomes less affordable, that normally is an indication that people are taking on more debt. Mike, Tom, hello. Hi, Alice. Hey, Alice. It's uh, great to be in the same studio. I'm used to seeing you in miniature form on my laptop screen. I noticed that you have also managed to 
commandeer my desk, which normally would be a, a big problem, but I, I think I can make an exception for my co-host. So uh, what brings you to London? I do have to say, the only reason I accommodate your desk is because it's so unbelievably spotless that I couldn't imagine <laughs> that anyone actually used it regularly. So I, I think that says more about your uh, cleanliness than it does about my desk polluting habits. But no, my trip to London is just uh, my sort of annual return to the mothership. It's always good to come back and catch up on all the office gossip. What are you up to in Seoul, Mike? I'm just making this, because you're in Kentucky so often, this is a sort of fried chicken tour of money talks now. Um, we're just hitting up all the world's best locations for fried chicken. Uh, no, no, I'm here doing some, uh, having some meetings, doing some interviews. I haven't been back to Korea since before the pandemic, so it's fun to get back to the sort of places that I used to come to a lot. Yes, unfortunately, the topic of today's episode is not fried chicken and all of the ways in which it's wonderful, but the housing market in America. Yes, we'll have to come back to fried chicken for another episode. Housing is a topic that most people take a fairly keen interest in, either because, like me, they're renting and they worry about what's going to happen to their rent when they renew, or they have to find a new lease, or they own a house and they want to know what's happening to the value of what is likely to be their biggest asset. Alice, I understand that this is of particular interest to you at the moment. Uh, yes, that's right. And uh, not just because I've been transfixed by what the US housing market has been doing over the last year. It's also because I've actually just bought a house in DC, which means I'm now extremely personally invested in uh, whether or not there's about to be a massive collapse in housing prices. Congratulations on your continued climb into the upper echelons of the rentier class. Maybe we can discuss a little bit later whether you've bought at the right time or not. Yes, it will be great to uh, chat later about whether or not my uh, financial future is probably in ruins. That will be that will be great. I'll, I'll look forward to that. Yes, congrats, Alice. I feel like maybe we should have gotten you a housewarming gift or something. Yeah, we haven't quite moved yet, but uh, when we do, I'll expect a sort of candle and or large potted plant in the mail. Before we get into it, we should probably say that although we're going to focus on the US in this episode, what we're going to discuss has been a phenomenon globally. Uh, but there are some quirks that mean that America's housing market does work slightly differently to places like the UK, where I am now, and Australia, where I grew up. Yes, that's right. The American housing market is essentially sort of underwritten by two massive government entities called Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which were founded about 100 years ago and 40 years ago, respectively. And they underwrite most of the credit risk in the American housing market. So when someone creates a mortgage, it's often sold to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They stick this uh, credit guarantee on it, bundle those mortgages all up into a sort of big mortgage-backed security and sell the pieces of that to investors. So investors are just taking the sort of interest rate risk and these two entities are guaranteeing the creditworthiness of the people who borrow. And the result of this is that in America, unlike anywhere else in the world, almost everyone has a 30-year fixed rate mortgage because investors are just exposed to that interest rate side of things. And it's by far the most common mortgage in America. And it's a very strange product that doesn't really exist anywhere else. And those fixed rate mortgages, they can really skew housing markets. So if you imagine 
that you are a family of four, you have a, a 3% mortgage on a sort of small house and you're keen to upsize to a bigger one, maybe 50% bigger and costs sort of 50% more, then if you did that three years ago, that probably would have meant your monthly payment would have increased by about 50% as well. But because interest rates have more than doubled in that time, your mortgage payment on that new home would probably be triple what it is on your current home. And that's not quite how things work in other markets. So in the UK, most people have floating rate mortgages. And so they're sort of exposed to interest rates either way, whether they stay put or whether they move. But in America, you're only exposed to higher rates if you move. So most people, unsurprisingly, try to stay put. So the changing circumstances of people's lives are obviously one of the biggest drivers of behaviour in the housing market and and house prices globally. There's an old saying that death and divorce power housing markets. Obviously, there are other factors as well, but it sounds like the sort of recent dynamics would create a sort of seizing up of supply. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly what's happened. Inventory of houses for sale is basically at all-time lows and transaction volumes in America are also depressed. They were down by about a third in 2022 relative to the previous year. Yeah, the UK housing market has also been on its own roller coaster ride over the last few years. So during the pandemic, the government cut the stamp duty or the tax on buying a home. And that created this really hot housing market, which yours truly bought into, although thankfully with a five-year fixed interest rate. That freebie from the government has now ended. And similar to the US, we've started to see house prices in the UK falling. So I, for one, am certainly keeping my fingers crossed that the slump is going to be nice and shallow and short-lived. You're all revealing our biases here, right? You and I are obviously sort of long the housing market of Micah is is short. He'll have to keep us honest about our our predictions of where it's going to go. All our listeners should go and uh, start buying houses, <laughs> boost, boost the prices. Yes, yeah, specifically in northwest DC and... Uh, northwest London is where I'm invested. Those are really the, the hottest housing markets of them all, guys. Uh, get your houses there. But having just bought a house in the US, I do have a sort of newfound appreciation for what an intense and expensive process it is and how all of the dynamics that we are talking about at the macro level do trickle down to affect sort of individual home buyers' decisions. But to hear about all of those big macro forces and what's happening at a national scale, I spoke to Skylar Olson, who is the chief economist at Zillow, which is one of the most popular apps in the US for searching for property. Hello, Skylar. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So just to get into this topic, for the completely uninitiated, why don't we try to sort of talk through the different phases of the sort of American housing market over the past few years. Why don't you talk us through what it was like for home buyers or, or sellers during the peak of the pandemic frenzy from 2020 onwards? The way that I like to think about it is you had two really big incentives going on. One, the leverage of a lifetime. So, you know, all that liquidity support coming from the Fed dropped mortgage rates to record lows below uh, where they were actually during the global financial crisis. So, you know, a brand new opportunity to kind of rush in and grab super low mortgage payments and access that great affordability. That second incentive happening, I think was happening a lot of places, you know, the great remote work experience. So a big push away from what had become really expensive expensive job cores um, out to smaller areas. And then, boy, that was a boom. So we're talking 
homes selling in six days or less from listing on, you know, was a typical listing across the U.S., which is kind of wild. You know, during a normal shopping season, you'd expect to have three weeks, you know, spend time exploring. And, you know, that continues up until really the end of 2021 when the Fed says, hey, we're going to reverse our stance here from accommodative to restrictive because inflation is just a huge problem. That almost immediately spikes mortgage rates. So a mortgage rate moves from, you know, around the 3% ballpark range for a prime borrower all the way up, you know, 5, 6, 7% by November. That's cutting to affordability. Just to put that in perspective for what that does for like a typical household in the US across, that's an extra $800 a month. That's the difference between only needing 25% of my income, you know, on uh, my mortgage payment and uh, property taxes and insurance, all the way up to 36% or more, you know. So now I've got a huge demand shock. Demand pulls back. Affordability is this incredible challenge. And housing markets across the U.S. adjust. So you've got that kind of response. You see home prices falling. Things are frozen. So that's what we've seen so far. But what are we seeing today? Now, what's happening today is that home values are no longer falling. So what gives? Housing markets are weird in that the sellers are also the buyers. In the U.S., 71% of sellers are also buyers. Who's really sensitive to the fact that mortgage rates are up around 6.5%? Well, the one holding on to those low, low mortgage rates, you know, with a low, low mortgage payment, and they're locked in. And in the U.S., uh, a huge majority of recent homeowners and existing homeowners have fixed rate mortgages out to 30 years. So, okay, what do I do instead as an existing homeowner? I hold it and we're seeing competition renew because there's just no new supply. Let's drill into this more recent phase, because as you said, between basically sort of June of last year, which was really when mortgage rates spiked very aggressively, you have seen sort of home values falling through to December. And so what is it that's happened in the sort of first few months of this year that you think has sort of potentially put the brakes on that? So normally in a housing market, you'll start to see new listings coming on, you know, with a little bit of interest in January, you know, even more should come on in February, even more should come on in March, and then even more in April. But we just saw a real pullback in the number of new listings to the market each month. And it just continually actually got worse. So that from March to April, the number of new listings entering the market was flat. And today there are, to put it like 35% fewer homes listed in this April than in a pre-pandemic U.S. housing market. And that's really dramatic pullback in supply. And, you know, sales are kind of only down 25%. And and kind of where you explain that, you know, sales are going to start to be limited just by the lack of new listings coming onto the market. But fundamental demand is there. And what do I mean by fundamental demand? Like birth rates are falling. So never again would there be this many 25 to 45 year olds, you know, in just U.S. demographics. This is the time of the millennial generation. You know, they're coming after your homes and that's renewing the pressure. This demand dynamic we're talking about, this sort of demographic 
dividend. I saw some sort of very interesting census data recently that showed that between 2019 and now, millennial home ownership rates have climbed very, very sharply. So by about four percentage points in just that two or three year period. And now about half of millennials own homes. Obviously, that's still quite shy of the 70% of Gen Xers or the 80% of boomers that, that own homes. But in terms of that structural demand, how do you think that's going to sort of play out going forwards? That's actually what I worry about the most, because if I don't see the supply come to the market that can help prices fall, right, then what we're ultimately talking about is this kind of unaffordable level persists. So the way that I like to think about this, you know, this fundamental demand is coming. It's, you know, returning this pressure to U.S. housing markets. There's, you know, limited supply from older generations and existing homeowners. This pressure returns, you know, to prices. Right now, you know, incomes are still growing pretty steadily, but we are expecting, you know, to enter, uh, you know, or we could enter a mild recession here and that could start to come down. So I like to think about that down payment affordability. Like, can I get into U.S. housing? So I like to do a bit of emotional algebra around to a price to income ratio. So how long would it take for a current new home, you know, first time home buyer to save up for a down payment all by themselves? Let's say you put 5% of median household income away and you're trying to get to 10% down, you know, in order to, to compete in this market and buy a home. Today, that's going to take you over eight and a half years. And this is my, it's not the avocado toast or, you know, the, the bougie lattes, right? That's keeping millennials back. In 2000, it would only take five and a half years, right? So that's three years longer. And if home values return in their appreciation and income slow down, that, you know, continues to erode. And I think that will keep pressure on rentals in the U.S. So rent growth is, you know, still slower than pre-pandemic, but also kind of returning. But on the supply side, you've mentioned that you don't think older generations are necessarily going to sell up and move out. And I guess the sort of other part of the equation that could sort of help boost supply is new home building, right? So I guess, what is what is going on with sort of both of those dynamics uh, in America? Starts in single-family homes in the U.S. are definitely down from where they were pre-pandemic because of this affordability challenge, right? Home prices kind of went too far. But new home sales has already seen their bottom, and they're starting to see that volume start ticking up again. That gives builders good confidence. Even as they start seeing, you know, the price of lumber is coming down, there are other things that are making it a bit easier. So builder confidence is coming slowly back up of a you know record low confidence and i was really excited about the you know more recent permit numbers so they're up in the multifamily space and they're up in the single family space so that's encouraging but that takes time too these are long build cycles though there's a lot of homes under construction and those are you know steadily continuing to kind of come out and i think in this environment what we're talking about is a larger share of home sales in general in the us are going to come from new construction because of the pullback from existing homeowners uh, skyler thank you so much for joining the show yeah well thank you so much for having me So, Mike, Tom, I feel like the arguments about the supply problems with housing in the U.S. are sort of pretty familiar to people. So obviously there's the sort of nimbyism, there are zoning problems. In general, America just hasn't really built enough houses for the past sort of 15 years. And what I found sort of interesting about what Skylar was saying is that 
without that kind of supply glut that we had during the last housing crisis, it really is hard to see sort of how you'll get house prices falling really aggressively. You know, high interest rates can't fix this supply problem because they depress supply. They depress the the number of homes that are for sale just as much as they depress demand by forcing buyers out of the market. So a really hot housing market can be seized up by higher interest rates, but not necessarily crushed price-wise. Yeah, I really enjoyed the sort of description of the different factors at play, because I think it gets to the dual things happening in the the housing market. You've got the real factors, supply and demand, which mostly affect rents, obviously, all of these changes in behaviour caused by the pandemic on that front. And then you've got your financial factors, which I always imagine as a sort of magnifying glass that you put over the entire industry, the entire household sector in whatever country you're talking about, in terms of access to credit. Obviously, during the pandemic, you had these things working in concert, the supply shortfall and huge changes in working habits on the real side. And then this extraordinary boom in in financing on the latter. And it's obviously we're still sort of shaking a lot of that out. You've got to get, I guess, into a position where you see significant forced selling to see the sort of price declines that we were maybe, uh, some of us, hoping, expecting, whatever word you'd use to happen with these sort of interest rate hikes. You have to see people who are genuinely sort of financially unable to hold on to their homes, who are then willing to sell at much lower prices than they'd usually be keen to do so. So uh, yeah, if they're not being forced to do so by the combination of the economy generally and financial conditions, then it turns out maybe the impact on house prices is a lot less than you might expect. And that's not just the US. You know, you've seen the drop in house prices in the UK and Australia and places like that, but then they were relatively shallow and they don't seem to be falling at least very rapidly at the moment. Both of them seem to have sort of stopped out to some extent. So yeah, there's a lot of sort of international comparisons here that are interesting. Yeah, I was really struck by the figures that Skylar shared around the ratio of house prices to incomes increasing so sharply over time. And there's certainly been plenty of news recently around cities like San Francisco suffering from from a slump at the moment. But the increase in, in house prices over the last couple of decades in America, but also here in the UK, has been particularly acute in, in large economically thriving cities, whether that's New York or London, and they're simply not adding enough new capacity to, to meet demand. And, and the upshot of that is that low-skill workers end up getting trapped in, in cities with lower housing prices, but also just significantly less economic opportunities. Speaking of markets that are defying gravity, I'm very much looking forward to reading about net zero aviation in the paper this week. After all our discussion about EVs and batteries last week, I want to know a bit more about the prospect of using electricity to power planes, at least over short haul flights. So yeah, very much looking forward to reading that. Listeners can read that piece and more for absolutely nothing by going to economist.com forward slash podcast offer for a free 30-day digital subscription. And that's if you're not a subscriber already. After the break, we will hear from someone at the Federal Reserve about how policymakers are thinking about the lack of supply in the housing market and what that means for lenders and borrowers. But before that, we would like to hear from you. 
We're always trying to improve, and whether you're a loyal fan or you're new to Money Talks, we want to know what you think. So please take a few minutes if you have the time to fill out our survey by going to economist.com forward slash money talks survey. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Before the break, we heard that despite a huge jump in the cost of borrowing, demand for houses has remained relatively strong and prices are still well above their pre-pandemic levels. But that means that the affordability of homeownership has plummeted, which is a worry for policymakers, including those at the Fed. To keep an eye on what's going on, the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta tracks the affordability of housing across the country with its Home Ownership Affordability Monitor. That takes into account things like median house prices, mortgage costs and incomes. So to discuss how policymakers are thinking about the housing market at the moment, I spoke to Dominic Perviance, who works at the Atlanta Fed. Although I should say that his views are his own and don't necessarily represent those of the Federal Reserve. Hello, Dominic. Welcome to Money Talks. It's a pleasure to be here. So you look after the Housing Affordability Monitor, which is a measure published by the Atlanta Fed. Could you just explain what goes into that and how you pull it together? We became interested in housing affordability because uh, affordability is normally a leading indicator of where we are in the housing cycle. So if housing becomes less affordable, that normally is an indication that People are taking on more debt in order to be able to afford a house. It may mean that uh, there's some um, loosening of credit to get more people to afford. It also means that if housing becomes less affordable, then you'll see a contraction in demand and that may lead to a, a downward trend in the cycle. Basically, we measure affordability based on what the median income household can afford. And so if you look at uh, the median price house, the current interest rate, taxes and insurance, and you combine that all together, if that exceeds 30% of a household's annual income, then that household can't afford to purchase the median price house. Now, if it's less than 30% of their income, then it is affordable. And so we can look at each county in a major metro area and determine whether or not it's affordable for those making the median income in that county and then move up to the metro area level as well as the national level. Now, the combination of rising house prices and then higher interest rates pushed affordability to the sort of lowest level on measure. But things have softened a bit over the last few months. So what's happening with house prices now? Home prices have been coming down. Um, If you look at the uh, median home price, it sort of peaked in June of last year. It's dropped by about 10% nationally. Some markets a little bit higher, some a little bit less than that. Um, And that's too expected if you, you know, 
with housing affordability reaching at an all-time low, we've seen a, a sharp contraction in the level of demand. And so home sales uh, at their trough dropped about 40% year over year. So this is an historic contraction in, in housing activity. And that should be expected when you have very low housing affordability. And that's caused home prices to decline. Now, the reason the Atlanta Fed is interested in all this is because of financial stability and the impact that housing can have on the financial system. So if you're seeing people get sort of more aggressive with borrowing, putting less money down or doing other things to try and sort of reach to afford housing, is that something that you're getting more worried about? Or how does the Fed think about this now? From a credit risk perspective, the people who are buying houses today that are requiring mortgages tend to be people that are at the stronger end of the credit box, meaning these are people who have pretty strong credit scores in a stronger position in terms of all the key ratios like debt to income. So we're not seeing any risk in terms of credit quality. I attribute this in part to the fact that, yes, credit standards are a little bit tighter, but typically people at the lower end of the credit box are sort of your entry-level buyers. There just isn't enough inventory that's affordable for them to buy. Generally, the people who are buying are households that have a lot more income and people that are at the higher end of of the credit box. So we haven't seen a significant amount of of risk. And if you look at delinquencies, delinquencies are are in foreclosures overall are at historic lows. There isn't any indication that that would change anytime soon. Although as people are wrestling with inflation and higher costs, and their groceries and other necessities for life, you know, it, it puts a strain on people's ability to make their debt payments. So we have seen some movement. If you look at 30-day delinquencies and, and mortgages and car payments and credit card payments starting to increase a little bit. And that's probably a byproduct of consumers having to deal with higher inflation. But it's not yet reached a point where it is something to be concerned about. And if you look at your overall housing affordability measure, the last time it was this bad or even close to being this bad was in 2007, which was immediately prior to the housing crisis. If we were just looking at affordability, you might think we were going to go through the same kind of cycle. So why is that not the case? I think the big difference between today and 2008 is two things. It's the level of inventory. Um, We had uh, historic levels of new home construction prior to 2008. We had an extraordinary amount of foreclosure inventory that was dumped on the market, and that created a a surge of inventory. And so whenever inventory is that high, you have a pretty significant contraction in home prices. So we we are just not in that situation today. We have actually supply shortages, even though we've seen historic contractions and, and home sales. So that's that's one factor. The other factor is, is what we've just been talking about. There's the credit quality of originations is much different than it was in 2008. We had um, a significant share of subprime mortgages um, being originated prior to 2008. Today, subprime mortgages are, are barely existent. And so with the diminished level of risk and the shortage of supply is most likely that we're not going to see a 2008 type correction, even though affordability is at historic lows. 
So I guess there's a sort of good news, bad news uh, story here, right? On the one hand, we're not going to have a housing crisis, but I don't necessarily think that anything we've talked about suggests that affordability is going to get much better for buyers uh, in the near term. Well, I mean, it just depends on what you define as a crisis, right? Um, I think that when you have a situation where you make the median income and you can't afford to buy a house, that's a crisis. And it's not just buying a house. Rent is also at historic highs. And so you have people who can't uh, find a house to buy, nor can they find a house to rent at an affordable rate. And that that is a significant problem for the economy. If people are spending more of their money on housing, they're not spending uh, on on other things in the economy that really creates growth. And so I do think it's an, it's an issue that we should be thinking about and concerned about, even though the likelihood of us having a 2008 type correction and uh, uh, contraction in home prices is probably not likely. That isn't to say that there may not be some other factors that we're not considering that could cause a contraction in, in the housing market. I, I do think the level of home price appreciation we've seen over the past few years is probably not sustainable. But because we have this shortage of inventory, we're probably not going to see a significant contraction in home prices. But we are seeing home prices come down a little bit. And and I, how I describe it is, you know, it's not necessarily the, the balloon popping, like a, the bubble popping, but it's like some air being let out of the balloon. Yes, we're letting the air out of the balloon rather than uh, popping it. I think that's a lovely note to end on. So, Dominic, thank you so much for joining the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Alice. So, Tom, Mike, what do you make of everything you've heard? I think Dominic made a, a really profound point there, which is around how you define a housing crisis. So normally this term would refer to a sharp drop in house prices, but perhaps the real crisis is the fact that houses have simply become so unaffordable. Despite the recent drops, house prices in the US are still about 40% above what they were pre-pandemic, which is a, a massive increase on top of a number of years of already significant price increases. The points Dominic raised there about credit quality and the absence of the, the type of supply glut we saw in the lead up to the last financial crisis make me feel pretty comfortable that house prices are not about to fall off a cliff. But it does leave kind of unresolved this menace of unaffordable housing that I think does require a significant rethink on the supply side of the equation and greater openness to development, particularly in, in thriving cities with lots of excess demand. This whole subject really gets to sort of some of the stuff I'm most interested in, um, the sort of nexus between macroeconomics and, and finance. Um, housing is just so central to all of that. I'm in Korea at the moment, and it's sort of fitting for a housing episode because the housing market here is properly bonkers. You know, price to income ratios in Seoul make San Francisco look reasonable, and that's caused some problems. It makes me think a lot about the sort of financial structures that we overlay on top of housing markets and how they work. As as Dominic was saying there, sort of stuff about credit quality and affordability and standards 
they affect everything and they affect things like whether monetary policy works because you can't really raise interest rates to fight inflation if everyone is so dangerously leveraged that even small increases in in rates risk financial stability. And for me, this is all the sort of big part of how a lot of the pieces in policy and finance and economics fit together through the housing market. There's a strategist called Ritwik Priya who's been talking a lot about uh, what he calls a homeowner rental standard, which is basically what he argues the sort of financial system is based on. Instead of a a gold standard or another metallic standard that you might have had in the past. And I think there's a lot to that. This asset, more than anything else, is sort of really the foundation, the underpinning of the entire financial system. And how it gets treated is, is, you know, crucial to to so many of uh, these questions. Moving things a bit closer to home, Alice, how does this all make you feel about your home buying decision? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, I bought a house because it was sort of the right time for me to buy a house for for all kinds of reasons that aren't necessarily me trying to foresee precisely where housing markets are going. Even though I spend my whole life thinking about these kinds of dynamics, the sort of thing that I think more than anything is that it's almost impossible to time these things. So, you know, if you need a house, you should buy a house when it's the right time for you. And that's probably how I'll make my peace with my own decision. It's funny, having gone through the process, though, I have become a little bit more sceptical about how high uh, credit quality standards are in the US for getting a mortgage. Because what I've heard from bankers a lot is that there's not really any of this sort of 0% down mortgage financing going on and everyone is being very sensible and putting 20% down or whatever. But actually, having just gone through the process of getting a mortgage, you can put a very, very small amount of money down. And actually, as house prices have gone up, you've seen people's down payments fall, especially first-time home buyers. So the average first-time home buyer, according to a survey by the National Association of Realtors, only puts down about 6%. Um, and that actually is significantly less than I thought. Um, and it gives them a much smaller cushion against falling prices than I thought first-time home buyers might have. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that I think that, you know, we're going to get some sort of 2008-style crisis because people don't walk away from their homes the sort of minute they have theoretical negative equity. You know, that's not really how people think about this decision. But it does mean that things are a bit more fragile than I'd perhaps perceived going in. But overall, my sentiments on my own house is that in order to be flat the housing market, you need to have one house because you have to have somewhere to live. And I'm much more comfortable being flat the housing market than I am being short, uh, like you, Mike. So, uh, so, <laughs> so I'm comfortable from that perspective. This is sounding like a sort of Groucho Marx thing. You're, you're, you're not comfortable <laughs> with the credit quality in the financial industry anymore because they've given you a mortgage, therefore, showing, showing that they don't know what they're talking about. I do also know there's never a point before a housing crash where everyone sort of agrees, oh yeah, that credit quality was rubbish. That's all been, we, we, we lend money to anyone. Nobody ever says this. It's only after the fact people talk about problems with credit quality. It's never the consensus at the time that, oh yeah, we'll lend mortgages to anyone. <laughs> Yeah, no, that is correct. I am now extremely sceptical of the American banking system because they uh, they gave me a massive loan. That is how that's worked, pretty much. You've probably spent enough time criticising my mortgage lender for, for doing me the, the favour of giving me a loan. So shall we turn to our statistics of the week? Mike, why don't you go first? 
Yes, absolutely. My statistic of the week is 1.95 million. That is the number of tourists that visited Japan in April. It's up from 1.82 million in March. You've seen this number climb quite a bit, both from Japan reopening, obviously, but also from China reopening its borders and Chinese tourists coming back. That said, the number is still 33% below where it was in the same month in 2019. The bottom line of which I think is that there's still quite a lot of recovery in sort of physical travel and, and those sort of things still to come in Asia. Other parts of the world where everything is sort of completely back to normal, this might have sort of passed them by. But yeah, still on the sort of slow train to uh, recovery. But at least for Japanese tourism, it is it is getting there. I personally am going to try and uh, assist Japan with their endeavour to return to pre-pandemic levels of tourism because I'll be visiting in September. So just like Mike, I'm going to attempt to uh, impact aggregate Japanese GDP by spending all of my uh, <laughs> money that I no longer have because I put it all into my house on Japanese wares. Watch out, Uniqlo. I'm coming. <laughs> Well, uh, continuing on the topic of shaky credits, uh, my stat of the week is $3.5 billion, and that is the amount that KKR, which is a a private equity fund, is expected to lose after one of its portfolio companies, Envision Healthcare, declared bankruptcy on Sunday. So S&P, which is a ratings agency, reckons that bankruptcies of PE portfolio companies in the US are on track to double this year from last year's levels. So this industry has just been on an incredible tear over the past decade or so and and seemed for a while kind of more or less unstoppable. But PE has also relied on masses of leverage and the interest bills on those debts are really starting to balloon right as economic growth is slowing. And so tough times ahead, I think, for the uh, barbarians at the gates. Yeah, unfortunately for all the PE barons, they don't have 30-year fixed fixed rate <laughs> debt on their companies. They all have uh, horrible floating rate loans. So uh, yeah, I agree. They're definitely in more trouble. My set of the week this week is uh, one that I was reminded of because uh, I have returned to England and I was in Lyon this morning, a fast food chain, getting breakfast. And obviously they have the sort of halloumi breakfast sandwich. And it turns out that Britons are absolutely obsessed with halloumi to a far greater extent than sort of any other nation in the world. Britain imports five times the next highest uh, importer, which is Sweden, and they eat more halloumi per capita than Cypriots do. Not really relevant for finance, but a fun stat nonetheless. I mean, you've got to hand it to our home country in the sense that halloumi really is. It is great. I don't know why everyone else doesn't eat it. If you're listening from somewhere else, give it a go. Give it a go. Try try importing some. I certainly did detect when I moved to the UK from Australia that the frequency with which halloumi appeared on, on menus was certainly a lot higher here. Yeah, Britons love squeaky cheese. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> with that, I would like to thank Skylar Olsen and Dominic Perviance. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Timo Seiler. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alice Fulwood. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist. 
the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.